Okay, showtime. Uh, now is the time for the leader to qualify. Is it going? Okay, great. As I said, I'm Peter. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you, Nick, for asking me to speak. Um, so I've got a couple pictures here. Um, and which, uh, there's some before, there's some after, or I should say they're all during. Because um, uh, I came into the program 30 years ago. Uh, I'm 49 now. I was uh, you know, 18 or so when I came to my first meeting. And with an exception of about a six-year period from somewhere like 1999 to 2004, 2005, um, I've gone to meetings on a weekly basis. And um, next week, um, I'll, God willing, I'll be celebrating um, about eight, eight years of abstinence. I usually have it, it's somewhere around, th- I, I got abstinence just before Halloween, and I don't remember when it was, so it's just the Saturday before, whatever that day happens to be, and I think next Saturday is the Saturday before. So, all of these pictures will show, you know, when I came into OA, um, I kind of did it the reverse that most people do it. Um, you know, no surprise, chubby kid, love food, I love that Hershey's chocolate syrup, drinking it from a can. Not only the taste, but then the effect afterwards of just sort of being in this, like, coma state. And um, everything, I always look forward to food. If there was a meal, you know, I was always thinking about it. Going away to camp, what's the food like? You know, uh, or when I'm at camp saying, okay, this food is horrible. You know, this is what I like when I get home. You know, my letters home where this is what I like as my, you know, returning meal. So, food played a big, big part in my life. It played a big part in my family's life. Um, everyone, at, at, I don't want to say everyone, most everyone has a weight and food issue or an addiction issue in my family. Um, my parents split up when I was very young. It was a very chaotic household. Um, and, you know, I, I probably sought refuge of food. You know, it was very simple. and. You know, for, you know, I, I lived with my mother and she had to go back to work and she was having a very tough time. And as a childhood, what I remember growing up was she'd come home from work, uh, take some sleeping pills, be zonked out. And when she wasn't zonked out, it was, you know, high emotion. And as a five and six year old, I'm the one who has to calm everyone down. So, and that cr- kind of created this pattern uh, between me and women rescuing, fixing, all of those types of things. And, and that became the template uh, for my relationships up, up, you know, up until now. So it's, um, you know, those formative experiences in childhood I just sort of carried with me. And along with that was the food. And, um, you know, whenever I go to the doctor, he's like, you know, you got to lose weight. You got to lose five pounds. You got to lose 10 pounds. And here, I'll pass this around here. And, um, the pictures, when I look at them now, I'm not fat, you know, and part of that might be 1960s overweight is very different than 2013 <laughs> overweight. I mean, it's drastic. You wouldn't even think twice if I walked into a, a doctor's office and I was five years old in 2013. I, I'm normal weight by today's standards. But back then, I wasn't. And it was always on a diet, on a diet. You have to lose weight. You have to do this. You can't have dessert. All of these things. And my parents also were doing diets on their own. Uh, I remember in 1976, um, 
My father did one of the, it was the amino acid diet and liquid diet. He lost 60 pounds. I, I mean, it was unbelievable. And I figured, oh, I'm just going to do that. Sixth grade. So I did the amino acid diet in, in, in the sixth grade. And that's what I remember as my first real hardcore diet. Followed on, I mean, all the diets out there, I tried them. They didn't work or they worked temporarily. I think the thing that helped me most was being a kid and just exercising as a teenager. I began to lose a lot of the weight. Still yo-yoing and um, went away to college, gained the freshman 20. And uh, I remember it was winter break, none of my clothes fit. I had a, one pair of jeans and I went home and I remember is it was uh, out for dinner on Christmas Eve with my father and his girlfriend and my brother. And uh, he said, um, you know, you're a compulsive overeater. I'm a compulsive overeater. And you got a problem and you need to go to OA. I was like, okay, what? I, I didn't even ask what, what OA was. I just was like, all right, whatever, you know. And our relationship was a little strained, as it should be when you're 18 with your father. And, um, but it planted a seed. He goes, you can't control your weight. You can't control what you eat. And so, you know, being new in OA, he was going to tell everybody how to do it and identify all the compulsive overeaters in his life. It was, yeah, it was good. But it planted that seed. Six months later, um, and so I went back to school and um, began dating this girl. Summer break happened. She stayed down at school. I went home, went down to see her. She, she was a compulsive overeater, surprise. And um, she had put on this weight, and, and I remember I was losing all my weight. And uh, we both checked out an OA meeting. It was July 4th, 1983, in Washington, D.C., where I was living at the time. And um, it was a beginner's meeting. It was not a great meeting. I walked out of there going, not for me. And I went back to another meeting just to check it out for my girlfriend. You know, she went back to school. <laughs> and, you know, what I heard there, I mean, one, it was middle-aged housewives. I could not relate. Uh, looking at everyone, and middle age is probably early 30s at that time. When I'm 18. Yeah. Being 49, middle age is now 60. But, uh, you know, it's always a couple years ahead of you. And, um, but what I, and I couldn't relate to anyone looking at them at the meeting, but what I heard um, got me instantly. And, and they talked about the emotions. They talked about what food did, why they ate, what it seemed to solve emotionally in their lives. And I had never thought about food in an emotional way. I never thought about what was going on inside and what food did to just calm the storm, calm the chaos. And what they were able to do was give voice to ideas that I wasn't even really aware were running through my mind on a daily basis, but I understood them and identified with them immediately as they began talking about it. And, and right there I was like, okay, this is the place. This is the place where I'm going to find some answer in my life. Not necessarily food, but some answer, because they, I, I could so identify with what everyone was talking about. And, you know, I go check out meetings. 
Um, I was in school in Charlottesville, Virginia. There's like three meetings a week with five people. Um, not, you know, a hotbed of recovery, but, you know, there were meetings. And um, I went to them every week. Didn't even try to get abstinent. And, and at that point, what had happened was I had lost all of this weight. Um, today, I'm going to guess I'm usually about 183 seems to be the number. And um, I haven't weighed myself in a couple months, but I'll say it's probably close to that. And I had lost all the weight during the summer checking out these meetings, and, but the thinking hadn't gone away. So I, got, I knew if I lost weight and I got down to 170, life would be better. I would feel better about myself, better dating situation, better school grades. I got down to 170, that didn't work. So I figured 160 is the number. Got down to 160, that wasn't the number. Went down to 150, nothing changed. So obviously that wasn't the number. Because I knew at some point everything was going to be better. Because that's what I told myself. And that's what I heard everyone else say. You know, when this happens, then I'm going to feel good. Then I can begin to live. So I got down to about 145 pounds, 146 pounds, somewhere in there. And I only remember that because I went to the gym and they were doing one of these body fat tests and, and, and fitness tests. And the guy, you know, they had the little calipers. He could barely, you know, get a fat reading on there. And he's like, dude, you're too thin. He said, your body fat content is way under 10%. Uh, and I was like, that's great. That is fantastic. I was sick all the time. And, you know, imagine me with, you know, 35, 40 less pounds on me than, than right now. Um, and I still thought there was room for you know, a little bit more weight to come off. I had no concept of what I looked like and what was going to change my life and make me happy. I, you know, I just wanted to be happy. Today I call it I just peace of mind. I didn't know what happiness was. I just had this vague definition of what happiness would be and somehow food or weight loss was going to bring that about. How? No one ever really quizzed me on that. I just knew it was somehow going to happen and it wasn't happening. And that's when I walked into OA. So I walked in it's like not seeming like I had an issue with weight. I didn't. I had an issue with body image. I had an issue with food. I had an issue with how the world worked. I had an issue how I reacted to the world. Um, but at that moment, my weight was solved because I was down. But I knew going back to school, I was going to gain it all back. All back in a second. And I just, that terrified me. And because, you know, go to the cafeteria, all you can eat, order, you know, Pizza every night, beer, the whole nine yards. And so when I got back to school, there was a group of us. We'd all go to the dining hall together, and then we'd go to the gym later. And I'd be like, um, what can I eat? And they'd say, okay, you can have this, you, can, you can't have that. I'm like, can I have dessert? No. And that worked great, because someone was telling me what I could have and not have. Very much... We like working with a food sponsor, as I discovered later on, except they, there was no discussion with them. They're just like, yes, no, and, and there wasn't any real logic, but I was eating less than I would normally eat if left to my own devices. Um, but I knew the weight was coming back on, and I was checking out OA, and, I, and, and slowly things began to seep in, and I really saw I had a problem with sugar. And um, got a food sponsor I was not and, and she she was great she had a year of abstinence she was this nurse from Boston she's the only one who was abstinent 
she was the only one who worked the steps. I mean, we're like, you know, she actually did a fourth step? I mean, we're, you know, theory, it's a great concept, you know, but actually doing a fourth step, that was, wow, you know, amazing. Because remember, there's just four or five of us there. And, uh, you know, four or five people without recovery, it's, it's kind of tough to sort of, you know, pull yourself up and, and get things going. So, um, she said, well, you know, I'm an alcoholic and I don't drink. So, you know, the way I work my program is the way I, I work it with my sponsees. So, um, part of the deal is for your abstinence, no alcohol. You know, at this point, I'm probably 18, 19, college, <laughs> drinking, you know, I'm already battling the food and giving that up. And I'm like, well, this is OA. It ain't AA. And they're not taking the booze from me. Singleness of purpose. You know, of course, I can always find that, that angle somewhere. And um, so I just didn't tell her. I read my food plan out that I wouldn't say, you know, okay, uh, you know, have three pitchers of beer. That just didn't show up. But I promised myself if I began binging while drinking, then I'd consider giving up the drinking. And you know what? Yeah, I, as soon as I, I was drinking, I was binging. And finally, I was like, mm, back and forth. Well, the whole AA thing is, a, is another story. But I didn't get abstinent until I got sober. That was the bottom line, you know. It's like, I, because if I'm going to have a rum and coke, well, rum and diet coke. You know? <laughs> you know, that made it okay, you know. Rum's made from sugar cane. And then it's like, why do I want to go out and eat all this candy and, and, and pizza and everything else? I didn't understand the connection. Duh. So, you know, I really never got any long-term abstinence till I got sober. I got sober literally the last exam on the last day of school. So I was at graduation. My last exam, somewhat sober. My last exam, and graduation sober. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Uh, I was a wreck. I was an emotional wreck. And um, I remember sitting around with my girlfriend and a few other people talking at the time. And uh, people like going to law school and I'm going to go work for this IBM. And I couldn't even get a job interview. So I said, well, I'm moving to Paris. And people like, wow, that's really, what, what, just going to move there? And I'm like, yep, I'm moving there and starting it all over again. And, you know, I had been the summer before for a couple weeks and didn't really speak the language, but that's okay. I'm going to go do it. And so, graduation came, got a plane ticket, went over to Europe. Long story, ended up in Paris. And it was, I mean, by then I was a wreck. And, um, you know, I went to an English-speaking AA meeting at the American church. And, you know, at the end of the meeting, I raised my hand because he had any announcements. I raised my hand. I said, yes, you know, Peter Alcohol from Charlottesville, Virginia. I need to speak to someone after the meeting. And uh, these two guys said, yeah, well, speak to us. So he came up to me and introduced themselves. This guy's name was Peter also. And he was from Charlottesville, Virginia. He was in Paris writing a book. I was like, oh. What a coincidence. And then this woman walked up to me and she goes, are you in OA? I thought, yeah. Like, how did she know? And she goes, well, we're having an OA meeting starting in 10 minutes downstairs. You want to come on down? We'd love to have you. And I was like, oh, yeah, great. 
And that became my agenda. Got a food plan, got a sponsor, uh, went to OA in France, uh, uh, English speaking meetings mostly. And, you know, it's different today. I was back in Paris a couple years ago and it's very different. Back then, it was so easy to be abstinent. You could not walk in somewhere at 3 o'clock and order something to eat. They weren't going to serve it to you. 12, 2. Huh. 2.05? No. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, here, I'll give you some money. Here, just give me some food. No. The, the French are, like, strict. You know, and if I didn't want chocolate or uh, croissants, I didn't walk into the boulangerie or the uh, chocolatier. If I walked in the butcher shop, I'm not going to find that. So if I didn't walk into these few shops, I had my hours regulated when I can eat. The portions are much smaller. It was a piece of cake, so to speak. And, um, and, and I stayed abstinent. And it was really, and I also had to rely on people in the program. You know, going to the market, I didn't know the words for anything. It was all in metric. All right, how much am I supposed to eat? What's 40 grams? Is that six ounces? What? You know, I really had to rely on people and figure out how to truly eat uh, all over again. And that was um, such a gift. And, you know, stayed abstinent, came back to the States, got going in a way. And, um, you know, my weight stayed so stable. Nothing changed. I probably had about 13 years of abstinence, 10, 11 years of abstinence. And, you know, I started putting on weight. And all during this time, I didn't have a sponsor. I sponsored people. I kind of worked the steps. I had a sponsor in Paris, and in 1987, I began seeing one of the four people that was going to the meetings, and we both had the same sponsor, so I figured, you keep the sponsor, I'll find someone else at some point. And our, our relationship lasted maybe two months at tops, so it's, you know, one of those crazy relationships that, you know. And I never got another sponsor, even when I moved back to the States. I moved to Washington, D.C., didn't get a sponsor. Moved to Philadelphia, didn't get a sponsor. Moved to L.A., didn't get a sponsor. But I was staying asking and going to meetings on a weekly basis, sponsoring other people, so things were good. But slowly the weight crept up and on. And I began to feel OA didn't work. And so I slowly stopped coming to meetings. And I was eating some of that sugar-free stuff, and nutritionist said, look, honey, that turns into sugar in your body. You know, you're eating sugar, more or less. So I was like, well, might as well have the real thing. And started having sugar. I mean, when I stopped, when I got abstinent, Ben and Jerry's was not national. They did not have Ben and Jerry's in Charlottesville, Virginia. They certainly didn't have it in France. And so I was like, ah, oh, I get to try Ben and Jerry's. And um, five minutes. So, you know, I, I took that, you know, culinary road trip and uh, checked everything out. And I began to put on weight and more weight. And a lot of stuff happened. Um, and I got up to, you know, 200. I stopped weighing myself at 235 pounds. So I'll say that's probably, and that was near my top weight. And those pictures are probably around my top weight. But I had it under control. At 235 pounds, eating a pint or two of ice cream every night, I could go back any time I wanted to OA. I could just begin that diet. And that's what I told myself. Yet when I was 145 pounds, I was terrified. I had no control over the food. 
And that for me, so I had to stay away from it. So that for me is sort of the two, you know, spec, end of the spectrum for me in terms of my compulsive overeating. Um, you know, I had some scares, uh, health issues. My father dropped out of a heart attack and, you know, going to the doctors because, you know, I had a similar thing and the cholesterol and none of the drugs would work. And I remember the doctor said, well, you know, there's a special test we can do over at UCLA that measures all the plaque in your um, artery. And given how high your cholesterol is and everyone, you know, in your family dies from heart attacks, let's find out. And so we did this test and he came back and he goes, I, I don't get it. He goes, your, your arteries are clean. 100%. There's no plaque buildup. There's not, nothing. He goes, your cholesterol is well over 300. I, he goes, I've never seen this. And in my mind, I remember saying, thank God for OA. At least for 10, 15 years, I was eating absolutely and so well that, you know, I wasn't eating all that stuff that would build up all that plaque and cholesterol. And that was a moment of clarity for me. And then, whoop, disappeared. And uh, didn't think about that again for a couple of years. And, you know, and I saw this other doctor and he goes, OK, prescription, lose 70 pounds and start running marathons that and you will run the marathon next year. And he goes, I don't care if you're 80 and you're my patient, you're running the marathon. That's how you're going to take care of your heart. So it's a great way to lose weight. You know, it's hard to run 20 miles and then gain weight after that. You could eat anything you wanted. And it was, I thought, well, this is the answer. Until I entered my leg, you know, and all the weight started to come back on. And then, you know, you know, after surgery on my leg, began to recover and the weight came back down and I knew it was going to bounce right back up. And this was the only place where I never worried about my weight never changed my pants size, uh, was at peace. And it really, that depressed me because I did not want to be here. I didn't want to admit I had to be an OA. And I remember coming to the kitchen sink. Uh, it was around Halloween. And the reason I came is my AA sponsor I met years ago in OA. And, and I, I, I saw him at some AA meetings and I was just beginning this weight loss, the, the 70 pounds. I remember him seeing in the meetings, he didn't recognize me or remember me. And that's my default. You're not going to remember who I am if you met me. And, um, and I lost about 20 pounds. And he goes, you used to go to those Hill Street meetings, OA, in Santa Monica. I was like, yeah. And he was like, yeah. So I was like, oh, well, I just had to lose 20 pounds for someone to recognize me. You know, <laughs> that's when I knew I was overweight. And he had struggled. And one day he said, you know, I've recommitted to my abstinence going back to OA. And I was like, hmm. And we didn't talk about food. We only talked about alcohol and alcoholism. And I thought, well, if he can try it, I can try it. And that's what brought me back. And so I walked into the rooms and, you know, kitchen sink, Saturday morning, saw a lot of familiar faces. I'm like, wow, God, there's a lot of the gang still here. And there was a guy. I looked at him. I'm like, God, that looks like a guy used to sponsor in Philadelphia. And sure enough, it was. I sponsored this guy 15 years ago in Philadelphia. I had no idea he even lived in L.A. And I'm always this person now looking for signs. I said, okay, that's the sign. That's the sign that I'm supposed to be here. And so since that point, you know, this is my home meeting. 
and um, got abstinent again. Got a sponsor. You know, I I ran into another guy, and he's like, "Oh God, you know, you're back in O." He goes, "Yeah, I need a sponsor." And I'm like, "Sure, yeah, let's begin." And I began. I'm gonna help you, but not me. And I thought, wait a minute, no, I can't do this. I got to find a sponsor for myself. I got to begin working the program with someone. And that has been the huge difference for me over uh, the last couple of years. And. Anyways, we can get more into other issues and the Q&A, but my time is up. Thank you. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you you need not identify yourself. Um, please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on OA podcast. So, yes. Thank you very much, Peter. Could you talk about, uh, now that you went to the story getting a sponsor, could you talk about what it's like working with a sponsor and how he has taken you through the steps and how the whole process works for you today? Okay, so the question is, now that I have a sponsor, what is it like having a sponsor? How do I work with a sponsor in the process of going through the steps? Um, I would say the biggest change of having a sponsor and not having a sponsor is that my mind is going to walk through every single moment of my life calculating different scenarios. Well, is this going to happen this way or that's going to happen that way? Should I do this? Should I do that? And what if this happens? And then how am I going to react to that? And then how am I going to handle this if that goes on? And There's no outlet. There's no one to say, this is what is going on right now. This person said this to me and it is driving me insane. I want to kill them. And, you know, I'm not going to kill somebody, but I'll go eat over it. And so instead of that, I'll make a phone call to my sponsor. And the process usually works something like this. Sounds like you might have a resentment. Hmm. Why don't we write about that and let's talk about it. And I might do some writing, an inventory on it. Um, uh, 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 you know, it, and then we discuss sort of the character defects going on with it. It might not be exactly as it is in the format, but what happens is that I'm able to begin to see what's my part? What can I not control? What is it that I can do moving forward to not have these resentments, not have this stuff going on in my head? Um, Another thing might be I'm finding myself eating larger meals or, you know, um, you know, I can have stuff like pizza. If I'm going to have pizza, if I end up having it more than twice a month, like if I had it five days in a row, you know, that's a time, you know, call the sponsor and say, you know, I think I've got to sort of commit, you know, no pizza right now and this is what's going on or if I'm feeling really funny about the food, I'm going to call in my food or email it in on a daily basis. It's not something that I do today, but there are times when I've had to do it. I just know that um, I need that commitment. And so that's another way. And, and, and what happens, I think, in a way, it, it, for me, 
is that the sponsor gives me something unusually lacking, which is perspective. You know, are you going to be thinking about this a year from now? Um, I remember the big thing was financial insecurity. That's my favorite. I'm praying, you know, I have the fear of financial insecurity removed. I'm praying to have it removed and, you know, and it's not being removed. And I said to him, look, I'm doing this prayer and it ain't going away. And he goes, well, maybe you should stop praying to have it removed. I'm like, well, how's God going to know that I need this removed? <laughs> he would have no idea unless I told him. So I was like, all right. I won't pray to have it removed. And the funny thing was, after about two or three weeks, the fear of financial insecurity had been lifted. Now, I had been writing inventories on it, on some specific issues. You know, I'd been doing some other work on this area. But what had begun to happen, what had happened for me was, I was unwilling to believe that I was going to be taken care of no matter what. I understood that intellectually. But being taken care of means my life doesn't change. It only gets better. The circumstance coming down the road is not going to you know, create any impositions or roadblocks in my life. And you know, I'm like, you know, fear of financial insecurity is like, well, maybe you get foreclosed on. Maybe that's God's will. I'm like, that's not God's will. <laughs> that means I'm not working my program good enough. You know, that's how I walked around the program. You know, people, stuff happens to people. Oh, I guess, hmm, not working a good program. You know, I'm not judgmental anymore, but that's that judgment. Because why? Because it was my, you know, I'm running the show, not a higher power. And I had to let go of that. And maybe God's will for me, you know, suggestion from the sponsor that maybe even if I get foreclosed upon that is God's will and that's exactly what's supposed to happen for me and that may be the road to happiness and freedom from obsession that's all part of the process and I had to pray and be okay if that happened no matter what and through that process and working with the sponsor I wouldn't have gotten this on my own no way Working and talking about this with my sponsor helped me begin to see that no matter what happens, no matter what happened, I've been taken care of for 49 years. No matter what happens, there's nothing, you know, being foreclosed upon or losing my job or declaring bankruptcy or bouncing my, you know, you know checks, that is not going to kill me. What will kill me is going back to the food and gaining another hundred you know, pounds, and then some. And uh, so that is in working with a sponsor and getting that kind of perspective, you know, saying maybe there's a different way to approach your concept of a higher power. He wasn't going to tell me what it was. You know, he's an atheist. You know, I'm not quite sure what that means, but you know, it, it, it's different. And I, I was always looking for, you know, coming into OA, well, I got to find someone that is a, a slightly uh, wealthier, uh, more successful, thinner version of me, and that's going to be my sponsor. You know, when I was 18, no, no, couple first couple sponsors were women because there were no men. You know, and um, I recovery would come from people I'd never imagined, 
And so I had to look at people's recovery and say, what kind of recovery do I want? Does this person have a peace of mind and live their life? It, not that things are wonderful, but they live their life through adversity and through good times and can do so absolutely and joyfully. And that became, became you know, my guide to looking for help in the OA. Can I answer your question? Yes. Thank you so much for your Mm-hmm. Um, raised Catholic, um, 12 years at Catholic school, uh, and you know, I could take it or leave it. Uh, it. It didn't really do anything for me. And, um, you know, it, there's been other flirtations with organized religion, and I think it has a part in, in, in many people's lives. Um, I find a lot of... Half the time I hear them talking about stuff that's straight out of, you know, the AA big book. Uh, I'm like, well, you know, I'm already getting this somewhere else. Um, but what I had to do was that concept of understanding that I'm going to be taken care of no matter what was a very big, important relationship to have with my higher power. Regular meditation. I'd love to say it's daily. It's not but regular meditation and my prayers. You know, I used to have this, you know, please help me stay absent. Please help me stay sober. Please remove the fear of financial insecurity. What I didn't realize was that type of praying for me was increasing the self-obsession. Me, 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 me. Fix this, fix this, fix this, fix this. Me. Instead of saying, you know, what? let me do your will. Let me be of maximum service to the people around me. Let me go out into the world and no matter what happens, let's just have an open mind and open arms and be excited for the day to start. That's my prayer. And, you know, for a while, I've been reading the St. Francis prayer. And that prayer is not, you know, God help me get through this. It's when there's adversity, let me, you know, let me bring something to the table. When there's anger, let me bring joy. You know, let, when there's, what am I going to bring? Help me bring something to the situation, not what can I take away from the situation. And so that has basically been my morning meditation and prayer for the past couple of years. Um, another part of it is, is really, these days I focus on phrases. So, you know, the A, B, and C really have become very, 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 very important in my recovery, which... A, we're compulsive overeaters and could not manage our own lives. You know, okay. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our compulsive overeating. And that had to include me in that. I have no control. And for years, trying to get abstinent, or other people trying to get abstinent, and just not quite getting abstinent, I'd be like, okay, later. Guess you're not serious about getting abstinent. Well, if I be really believe that no human power, including these people, can get them abstinent, you know, um, then why am I blaming them? If it is a gift from a higher power that God could and would make me abstinent if I was willing to seek God's will. So my goal today in working with sponsees is to help them seek God's will. Maybe they're not supposed to be abstinent right now. I couldn't have gotten abstinent two years before I did. It just wasn't going to happen. Maybe whoever I'm working with is not supposed to get abstinent right now for whatever reason. I don't know. Um, but it's my job to help them seek that higher power and to help them find recovery. And so that's how I look at it today. It's a little bit passive, um, but it's also very active. 
you know, I think the way, the best way I can, and I have to remind myself of this every day. It's not like I'm thinking, walking around and this came naturally. It's, God is in charge of the noun and the verbs. I drove to the meeting. I'm speaking at the meeting. Some person cut me off. Some idiot who doesn't know how to drive cut me off and I, you know, they should have their license taken away. My job to fill in the adjectives and adverbs. So my drive over here could have been very good or it could have really been very, very difficult and made me very, very angry. But the facts don't change. The nouns and the verbs, I drove to the meeting. That didn't change. What kind of trip I had, the adjectives, are totally up to me. And that, for me, is the difference between having a higher power in my life and not having a higher power. I have some some decision I can make about those adjectives and adverbs in my life. When I don't have a higher power and I'm not abstinent, I have none. I am beholden to whatever the circumstances are in front of me at this time. Um, No recreational sugar. I used to get really crazy, especially, you know, when I was 145 pounds. You know, ketchup has sugar. I'm going to have ketchup. I'm not going to drink a bottle of ketchup, but, you know, it has, so it's like no recreational sugar. Um, you know, the first five ingredients, I think, if it's not in the first five ingredients, then, you know, that, that, that seemed to be the old OA um, benchmark, which I still use. Um, for the first three weeks, it's a real struggle to stay away from sugar. Sugar begets sugar. If I have sugar, I want more sugar. And it's like this idea of, well, I can have it on my birthday. Are going to have a little bit special occasion. Uh, every day becomes a special occasion. You know, then it's that thought, well, can I have it? Shouldn't I have it? What about this? If I don't have it, the obsession goes away 100%. I don't think about it at all, ever. You know, my kids, they're, my daughter might be a compulsive reader one day, but, you know, they have tons of stuff around the house. I'm getting cookies and stuff together, putting their lunch, get them out at the door. I don't think, well, one for them, one for me. You know, um, they don't have to say what happened to all the cookies. You know, they haven't had that. I haven't had to have that. Oh, no. <laughs> Maybe you just put them somewhere. You can't find them. Yeah, I don't have to do that game today. And also they're like, they're like, well, you can't have sugar. Does this have sugar? I mean, they're really probably my greatest watchdogs. And um, so it's no sugar. Um, there are stuff, you know, Flour, white flour, I have. But if I find, like, say, you know, pizza is fine. But if I have it more than twice a month or starts to be on a regular basis, then I'm like, hmm, okay. Because it's something occasionally that I'll have that's fine. And um, other than that, you know, I try and have three meals a day. I can have a snack. Um, if I really begin thinking a lot about a certain food, then i got to talk to my sponsor and say, you know, I don't think I can have this. You know, maybe for right now, today. And like with the sugar, I couldn't imagine going again the rest of my life with no sugar. So what I told myself is, I can have sugar tomorrow. I can have that dessert tomorrow. Then I'm like, okay, I can have it tomorrow. Tomorrow comes. I can have that tomorrow. 
And that little trick gets me through that hump. And after about three weeks, I'm not obsessing about the sugar anymore. It used to be 21 days of abstinence used to be like a big deal in OA. That was like a big marker years ago. And I think part of the reason is, is for me, I've seen that after about three weeks, the obsession with that food item begins to dissipate tremendously. And so I use that trick, you know, when I was getting abstinence this time. Well, I can have it tomorrow. I can go a day without anything, knowing I can have it tomorrow. And then it just moves forward. Is that my time? One more? Um, yes. Um, as an early nurturer of your mom, how did you So being an early uh, nurturer of my mother, what's the journey been towards nurturing myself? I would say the biggest thing has been willingness to put something like OA in my food plan before anything else. It's like, do you have to go to that Saturday meeting? You know, I really need you to do X, Y, and Z. My wife might say, and I'll go, no, I got to really go to that meeting. Or I really need that, you know, my food stuff. You know, I make breakfast and lunch. And, you know, I make sure I have that stuff around. You know, very, uh, OA is a, uh, recovery is a lot about preparation and execution. You know, fourth step, I write an inventory, I share it. I get ready to have the character defects removed. I have to have them removed. And so preparing, thinking about putting the program first, knowing I got to exercise on a regular basis, putting that in to my schedule. So I work a little less, I make a little less. I'll be taken care of. Those are very concrete ways I do it. Can I be overly selfish? Yeah. That'll happen. But if I don't sort of do that, then everyone else comes first and I become very resentful and I get to descend and become very sick. So that's it. Thank you very much.